Thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you to the Academy. That's an inspired policy to go with all the other century or so of inspiration that you've been uh, uh, sharing with New York City, sharing with the American art world. Um, everybody who bought a ticket tonight um, it must feel like a his historic occasion to have been the last person to pay for a ticket. <laughs> Those hordes who will be the first people to not have to pay for a ticket are, are, are like, you know, you're like, the, um, you're like the early adopters that Apple Mac punishes for pioneering its products. Yes, so, if you, I, I, I'm sure you all could buy your ticket, so therefore consider yourself invited to the Art Critical Party, which takes place at Gallery Zorsha, or Studio Zorsha, on 33 Bleecker Street on December 16th. To make sure you get yourself invited properly to that party, um, go and like Art Critical at Facebook and send me a message, and I will then say, great, you're one of those people that bought a ticket and I look forward to seeing you on December the 16th at our party. And just to show that I mean business, you can also have a peanut. So, <laughs> enough humor, there's some art to talk about. Um, who is, uh, who's, a review, who's here at the first ever review panel? Ah, excellent, marvelous. Well, I thought, you know, in this, this kind of weather, that's to be expected. But that's fantastic to see you. Thank you very much for braving the elements. Um, let me run through what we do here at the review panel and also refresh the memories of those who haven't been for a while. We've been to see four exhibitions, uh, the panel have at least, uh, I hope, and so too many of the audience. Four previously uh, announced exhibitions. Uh, we on the panel will show a PowerPoint of the first two exhibitions we're talking about. We'll have a little discussion uh, between the four of us. We will then open up to the floor and hear your comments and questions. Comments are always preferred to questions uh, because we'll have answered all the questions we can possibly think of, but comments are deeply necessary and welcome. So more comments um, from you at that point. Then we repeat the exercise, PowerPoint, discussion, comments, and then go back into the cold, wet night air. <laughs> so uh, my great pleasure now is to uh, introduce us uh, introduce my panelists this evening from uh, the corner outwards. Um, Raphael Rubinstein, poet and art critic, um, author of uh, multiple publications, including um, uh, as editor uh, an important, uh, a landmark uh, collection of essays, uh, Critical Mess, that looks at the state of art criticism, uh, a book that arose from his own um, article in Art in America called A Quiet Crisis. Um, he is uh, also the author of uh, uh, Reinventing Abstraction, New York Painting in the 1980s, uh, an exhibition catalog published by Chyman Reed, and his monograph on the redoubtable Shirley Jaffe is forthcoming from Flammarion. Uh, Becky Brown is an instructor at both her eponymous university, Brown University, in um, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and at the Hunter School, where, of which she's uh, um, uh, uh, an alum, a recent alumna uh, in their MFA program. Um, she ha has a solo exhibition coming up at the uh, Kent Place Gallery in Summit, New Jersey, opening in January, with the intriguing title of Data Dust. And she also has a painting in the show, which has its uh, um, final week or so at um, 
uh, industrial city in Sunset Park, the um, coming together for Sandy's show, um, curated by Fong Bui. And on my right, um, our third guest this evening, uh, making his uh, uh, debut performance at the review panel, Raphael and Becky being uh, uh, recidivists, as it were. Um, Dennis, like Becky, is a visual artist and a critic. He writes for Art in America, the Brooklyn Rail, and I'm very proud to say Art Critical magazine. And as a painter, he recently staged a show of his work at the Garrison Art Center in Garrison, New York. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. And I should also like to mention, uh, to those who don't know it, that um, proceedings are recorded for later podcast. Uh, a big thank you to Isaac, our new sound recording engineer. Um, and you could hear, for instance, the first two panels uh, of this ninth season, uh, the ones in October and November, are all uh, are both at uh, artcritical.com, uh, as are um, almost all of the panels going right the way back to the fall of 2004. So exciting times, about to have our 10th anniversary. So let's get going now and take a look at the PowerPoints of the first two exhibitions, Richard Audrich and Reinhard Mucher. We're going to go now to uh, part two and look at uh, uh, our second pair of shows. But let's start um, by looking at uh, Mallory Marder. Um, Becky, I, I'm sure you've got a lot to share with us on this, but I'm going to um, tempt fate and ask a question. It may, may not be answered, but um, uh, it, it's um, striking that one of the Yale photographers, one of the um, a group of uh, women who um, emerged on the scene in the, in the 90s uh, from the Yale MFA program with uh, very big, very um, glossy, very uh, framed, uh, defiantly um, not pictures for a book kind of photography um, at, at the same sort of time as the, the sort of new wave of German photographers. Um, it's, it's, it's very striking, I think, that in this show, with her uh, first with a new gallery, that we get a salon hang of uh, works that are printed, um, not framed, and printed at, uh, at different sizes, um, and also a copy of the book uh, that, uh, that they, they service, uh, uh, Anatomy, or rather the book project that, that brings uh, many of them together. Um, what is going on, do we think, with the, the installation and the scale of these works? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I definitely noticed that first. It was The hanging was more akin to someone like Wolfgang Tillmans, which seemed like such a far out um, comparison in terms of the content of the work. Um, so I, was, I sort of wondered why it was hung that way. I think I'm, so, I'm still wondering when you have more documentary style photography, you, you normally have a more traditional hanging because the point is something more akin to journalism than Wolfgang Tillman's project. Um, so I'm, I'm still wondering, I think there was, there was a attempt for a kind of casualness, maybe a kind of informality that I don't know how much that, um, contributed to my 
empathy uh, with, the, with the subject of the work or my understanding of the story. Because that informality is somewhat belied, isn't it, by the sort of finesse and formality of the actual way these Dutch prostitutes are photographed. How, what was your, just your visceral response to the show? What, what, did you, what could you make of it? What did you, what did you feel about it? Me? Yes, you. Um, I mean, it's it's a very intense thing to see. I mean, I, I think that looking at images of sex workers is very, very powerful. I mean, I think that you have a sort of conflicting emotion where you're, you're sort of reacting to the taboo of it in a certain way. And in reading more about her work, she started out photographing uh, her friends and family in sort of provocative sexual uh, arrangements. So I think she's always sort of dealing with this with this idea of taboo and and trying to sort of implicate the viewer in terms of how we're reacting. Do we identify with the subjects? Are we do we are, are we sort of judging them in some way? Um, so I found myself sort of trying to trying to empathize with them, trying to imagine their lives, but sort of having trouble doing so, I think, because I was thinking more about their relationships with the photographer, which, I, and I felt like that, that was the dynamic that I really wanted to know more about. Yes, I think that's the, the key thing. Uh, Raphael, do you feel that um, she brought these women into her work or that she took her lens into their world, which... which... It was really hard for me to, to discern what the intention of this work was. On the one hand, it, you know, there are these allusions to art history, and they're very formalized uh, in terms of the color and composition. And so I, you know, is that, is, is, then that seems to go against the documentary aspect of it. And it also, you know, is she somehow trying to empower uh, or, or you know, give space to to these sex workers, and there's a lot you know. Reading the, I was trying not to be influenced or argue with press releases, but sometimes uh, it's uh, it's hard not to. And so they made a point about her you know, repeatedly going to these um, to the brothels and uh, learning, you know, having some kind of relationship, not the kind of intimate relationship she had with her previous subjects. But I, I felt I was puzzled or, or wondering, asking myself why she only chose to photograph them at their place of work, apparently. And if she is, in fact, if the work is, in fact, trying to sort of reveal the humanity or the truth behind the um, sex industry, and uh, at least in, in, in Holland, um, and treat these uh, subjects as um, complete beings and not simply um, uh, sex workers. Why? Why limit it to this one place? And, and I mean, the whole question. I think also Ken Johnson in his review in the Times brought that up. Like, what is her relationship to the subjects? And I, I guess also uh, thinking about how. I was thinking about the previous show I'd seen at that gallery um, by uh, Laurel Nakadate. And in that work, it's, you're very aware of the, uh, of the negotiations or, or relationship between the artist and the subject. And that is kind of the subject of the work. And I wondered here, like, did, she, did they do this for free? Did she have to pay for their time? I mean, there are a lot of 
unanswered questions that somehow seem <coughs> worth asking here. Yes. There's a real level mm. of remove, I mm. feel like, in them. It, it doesn't seem like she's a friend. They feel very staged. You don't, as a viewer, I don't really feel let in. So, I, I, yeah, I, I was feeling, feeling that way, too. It, it comes in the same season as uh, uh, Philip Lorca de Korsha's show at David's Werner Gallery, where part of the title of each work, is, 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 the, 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 the conceptual underpinning of the work is that, that each... Uh, each uh, uh, Rent Boy was paid for his uh, time. Um, art or anthropology, um, Dennis? Oh, no, I, I think it's definitely art. And uh, one of the reasons I, I asked, uh, this was on my list of shows that I wanted to review, even before I saw it, I, I, um, I, I saw it on the gallery's website. Um, and not because I was drawn to it so much as I thought it would make a really interesting uh, discussion. And my initial feeling was uh, especially about my own maleness and gender and trying to figure out what, what she was trying to elicit, particularly because um, her earlier work was very eroticized. Um, and I thought it was tr the the nudity, the bodies were mostly young, uh, well-toned. Um, the, the situations were very eroticized situations. Um, you almost, like, I almost felt like she was trying to engage my fantasies as a male or as a viewer in these pictures. And these are just like so much the opposite. I don't think there was one uh, body in there that seemed at all appealing or eroticized, uh, even though it the situation is supposedly you know uh, a part of eroticization, and they all seemed of a totally different class. Um, they all seemed like of a sort of a lower class um, origin. So I thought that there was definitely like a real kind of class examination in these and it kind of reminded me about the whole i know it sounds really silly but the whole mané olympia thing about how um how the olympia was so controversial because uh they were trying to read class into the body of the the prostitute and that the role of prostitution in 19th century france was supposed to be about um, subverting this idea of class that the women were pretending to be, you know, courtesans uh, as opposed to just streetwalkers, and um, and so I just was puzzled by how she was trying to engage me emotionally. Plus, I thought that these were like some of the saddest paintings or picture, uh, photographs that as a group that I'd ever seen, there was like, it just seemed grim. It really made me want to slit my wrist, kind of. <laughs> it seemed to me that the grimness was of a very um, strange, itself of a strange and contrived order, because actually the poses are, it's, it's as if um, she really is um, a John, because um, all of them are posing for her as artworks. Uh, all of them are, adopting either classical poses or renaissance poses the the lighting is uh, 
uh, very kind of um, has a kind of sickly luxury to it, uh, which is um, uh, really I, I won't claim to be a connoisseur of Dutch brothels necessarily, but um, <laughs> the, the the actual banality, the bathos of uh, a contemporary place of prostitution uh, is completely lost in, even though they are these women's actual workplace, the, the lighting and the textures uh, and the mood elicited couldn't be further from the, um, the kind of pathetic efficiency of um, Northern European uh, uh, standardized sex industry. Um, furthermore, the women uh, in these photographs, when they do meet uh, specific male fantasies are meeting a highly specialized um, um, fetishes. And none of, none of the women here are doing that. None of the women are in kinky dress at all. The last uh, one. one or two, but uh, <laughs> most, almost, uh, most of them, they are skin pics in um, Renaissance or Angra-esque poses, which I, the, it, it, one has an overwhelming sense that the women would have been tutored in by this Yaley with her camera. So, um, therefore, it, it had a, it's, it seems a very strange phenomenon. Why, why, why not just get models or out-of-work actors to do it for her? Is there any, I mean, it's clearly we're, we're, we're establishing it's art, not anthropology. Um, so, therefore, um, what is the value that's coming across from her having actually um, engaged these women with their, these bodies, do we think? I think it's to ask that this question. And I mean, this is why I was sort of fascinated with it, because it just made you ask questions all the time and made you like so aware of what it was not and so aware of the... Even, there wasn't even a pretense on, of like sort of not just in the bodies, but in the eroticization of the gaze of the women. Um, they look just either bored or trapped or, you know, uh, like going, you know, it's just that they just did not look happy with their lives. They didn't look like, I'm happy to be a prostitute. It's like, uh, oh God, I have to do this. <laughs> you know, I've got kids to feed at home or something like that. It was just really... But they didn't have the grim resignation of somebody who's going to work to do a, um, a job that's going to be messy and tiring that you would get in, say, uh, a nurse or a firefighter. Um, but, but, you know, they don't, they don't look like um, contemporary Dutch sex workers. They look like a, a group of women, many of them not in the best shape, who've been enlisted for an art project. I mean, I think that it's that I I I, I agree partially and disagree partially with what Dennis is saying because I think that they they almost there's a sort of emptiness emotionally to the images. I feel like so I don't I don't so much feel like they're oh upset that they're prostitutes or I I don't feel pity exactly. I I almost there's almost a, a barrier. There's a sort of detachment from feeling emotion at all because of the kind of stagedness in the in the kind of mediation that seems to be happening that that I and we don't quite know what that is or the terms of that mediation so it's hard to to relate on a on a personal level um, other sort of documentary I think that I saw a film about prostitutes in India and there's I've seen other you know images of sex trades in in various 
countries and, you know, it's, it's raunchy, it's dirty, it's, there's all kinds of things going on that you don't see in these images. And I think that's a good point that David made that they practically feel like they could be staged sex workers <laughs> in a certain way. I mean, I trust that they really are, but there's a sort of that quality. You should never trust. <laughs> <laughs> never trust, no. Um, a final word, uh, Raphael, or shall we move on to Morris? How, how yeah, I mean, another question, the subject prostitution, as you pointed out, has been a, a, a core central obsession with artists and writers uh, for, you know, since the, at least since the middle of the 19th century. It's sort of the, you know, a, a classic um, uh, motif. Well, the undertaste, yes. Yeah, and, and Baudelaire and, and up to Jean-Luc Godard, who had a, has a similar obsession with prostitution. So one question is, you know, what, is it possible to bring something new to this subject? Has she done that? I don't know. One, one wants a woman artist to do so because, in fact, it, it, even this it goes beyond Godard to Lars von Trier. I mean, uh, pros, uh, uh, people making art movies in Europe just never tire of the whorehouse. But uh, um, one would hope that uh, a younger American woman would just bring some intelligence and sensibility to bear. And um, perhaps the feeling here is that maybe. Well, there's there's she no hasn't. action in a way. I guess I'm thinking of those references and the, the differences, and it's there's such a stillness to the images that it's hard to tell um, how to position them. There's it's what they're not. I mean, I just constantly am hit up upon the head about what what they are not being, especially when you see her earlier pictures, which was so much about, you know, this eroticization. And yet these bodies are like real bodies. I mean, they're, you know, unmistakably, you know, real, they're not fantasy bodies. They're not, you know, bodies, they're just like every, there's something like so every day. And I think the fact that she's a woman and depicting, like taking all of that fantasy away from prostitution, I think is an important, you know, component of the work. But the melancholy of the prostitute is itself a fantasy. That's the thing. Because, um, uh, yes, some prostitutes are going to suffer from depression and feel melancholy. But to have, uh, like, this many uh, photographs of women who look like very, very pensive, classically pensive, like Dürer's Melancholia almost, uh, and, and the, you know, the book takes its title from Burton, uh, um, The Anatomy of Melancholy. So um, it, it's, it's, it's maybe it's more about Burton than it is about sex workers. That um, it, it seems that, uh, that, that actually, but they are stage directed clearly to fulfill a fantasy or a, uh, an image. Image is a better word because fantasy is too loaded in relation to paying a prostitute, but if, if, if there's, there's a, uh, an a priori image in the mind of, or the heart of uh, uh, Mallory Marder, which is um, of um, a kind of almost operatic sense of melancholy. And um, uh, that's, that's what seems very weird to impose rather than allow to emerge from uh, the subjects themselves. The subjects are objects. That's, that's the bottom line, isn't it? I was imagining them sort of laughing about this whole process afterwards, you know, something like this, or yeah. how I, I was, it seemed like there was maybe, well, I, hope, I don't know. I hope she, <laughs> she paid them at least as well as uh, uh, Decorsha paid his guys 
out on the streets of LA. So let's... Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's move to our next show, uh, Reinhard Mucker, up the road in uh, Luring Augustine Gallery. And I think, uh, Raphael, we have uh, perhaps the opposite of the, the sensation of uh, uh, Aldrich's um, conceptual and stylistic promiscuity in, in the kind of rigor and determination of, of the Mucker form, don't we? What, what, what do you make of his work? Where do you, where do you place yourself with it? Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I still remember so clearly um, in my first encounter with one of his works, it was in Paris uh, at the Centre Pompidou in 1985 or 86, there was a show of Mucha's work. And at this point he was um, making installations by with uh, items, objects he found within the museum. So he had built these enormous structures with um, uh, aluminum ladders and uh, uh, tables and chairs and neon lights and electric fans and um, all manner of things that he would just provisionally uh, assemble into these objects, structures that were part kind of monument, maybe a part Ferris wheel, carousel, um, and, but very clearly referring to the, the space around them. And I've never, there was one of my kind of early, just as I was beginning to write about uh, art, one of my early most powerful experiences. And then I've had very few chances to see his work since that. And he shows very rarely here. And his work has changed a lot. He no longer works with this kind of assemblage of um, materials at hand. But there's a, so the work is, I think, much more, has a more melancholy feel to it. But I think this is work is about history, big and small. And like the big history is Germany, and there's a lot to be said about that and how this work engages German history. And then the small history is the history of the materials and techniques that he uses. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, yeah, he's very different kind of artist from uh, Richard Aldrich. And, um, and yet there is something uh, that this work doesn't tell you everything about itself. There are, like, there are secrets within it. But the kind of engagement you have with those secrets is very different because there's a, I mean, for one thing, the amazing amount of skill and technique and careful attention to detail uh, that uh, it's I've really, uh, astounded me kind of how, how much time I could give to each one of the pieces in this exhibition, with one exception. Mm-hmm. One exception. Well, we'll come, back, we'll come back to the one exception, <laughs> whether it was the choo-choo train or not. But uh, uh, Becky, um, yeah, it, it is, uh, I, I think uh, I had very much the same experience at one level of Raphael, of, of being uh, in the presence of a, an extreme... Um, uh, finesse and craft and formalism on the one hand, and um, a very uh, deep sort of pervasive melancholy and a sense of possibly reading or overreading by the fact of his Germanness, uh, the, the 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 connotations for me as a as a Jewish uh, as a Jew looking at this show, it's very hard to see a show this much about railways um, in Germany and and not think of uh, uh, the Holocaust. 
where, where, where did you find yourself? Uh, did you find, your, did you find uh, Mukha primarily promoting um, uh, aesthetic intrigue or um, historical and uh, emotional sort of resonance? Um, a little bit of both, I think. I mean, I, I also walked in and, and immediately sort of reacted to the, to the materials and the kind of incredible carpentry that I was seeing, I mean, peeking back and just seeing all of this sort of intricate carpentry. Um, and then I was surprised to learn, I, I asked someone who worked there about the process and she said that they were in fact all fabricated. So that sort of shifted it to me because my, my first thought was, wow, it's like someone um, had, had collected a lot of things from antique stores and got a huge gift certificate to Home Depot and then went crazy. Um, Cause there's just so, there's so many, um, there's so much hardware in the show that and I kept, I kept sort of thinking about what were these objects intended to be used for? What, what is their function? Because it seems like with that much hardware, there would be a function. And then I would have this realization, oh wait, this is art. There doesn't need to be a utility per se. And I kept having that, that sort of um, back and forth with myself. That was my first reaction. Yeah. So trains, Dennis. What do we make of his train obsession, and and does it rub off? Does do do we um, does do the trains move us? Where do the trains move us? Um, you know, I I had like several stages of uh, reaction to the show, and I, I I'm like Raphael, I, I hadn't really seen any of his work before, so and, and at first, and when I and this is a great lesson, you know. I looked it up before I went on the gallery's website, and I saw these vitrines and stuff, and I thought, oh gosh, overbuilt, blah, blah, blah. And then when I went there, it's just, it does really pull you in. There are these really old things, they're, you know, um, encased in, uh, you know, very new construction, like little artifacts. And at first, I started thinking this is sort of nostalgic. It, and then there's like this undercurrent of, you know, like you said, a melancholy. And I definitely, you know, started feeling that. And then I happened to read like part of the press release that talked about how the, the whole train system of Germany and, and the Holocaust. And there, there was, and suddenly it was like, um, am I really just being manipulated to experience? you know, have another kind of, uh, this is important because it was about the Holocaust experience. And, um, and that's where I was kind of, um, again, brought up like, who is the audience and what, and what is the expectation for somebody's reading? And I, and I feel that there wasn't, uh, despite the idea that you could read it in a lot of ways, I think in the end you came down to uh, being there to acknowledge the, you know, Germany's role in the Holocaust kind, kind of thing with this whole uh, architecture of, you know, destruction and this whole um, recontextualization of, of stuff. But still, I think there is like a definite emotional um, feeling that happens with these. Yeah. Well, I, 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 Concur with much of what's being said. I I, um, I don't know how much real pleasure I was getting from the 
hardware finessing, but I actually would now like to find out from Raphael what the piece was that uh, failed him, because I actually thought, in a way, the, the large piece with the actual trains moving through rusty pipes uh, was uh, both uh, a sort of apotheosis of everything else and something else rather different, something else entirely. Which was the piece then that was the big exception for you? Uh, well, uh, before I answer that question, I just want to say two things. I, my understanding, and I'm not sure whether it's right or not, is that he, he does a lot of the work himself and, and he doesn't rely on a lot of them, that it's not fabricated outside of the uh, studio, but I'm really not sure about that. That's just kind of oh, what I got from reading. Because I, I asked and she said that he works with a builder and that he, I mean, she used the word fabricated. So, and I was sort of surprised because it felt the, the kind of carpentry felt very particular. So I, but that, I mean, that's what she said. So, so. anyway, but it's interesting yeah, also so to like what The plans in the back room, the black room is a, a very dense, um, a piece, pieces made out of, um, I mean, it's a piece in itself, and at the same time, it is like a, sh a, a drawing show. I mean, a pre preparatory work show, and a very much retrospective. And it shows a, a fanatically detailed, detail-oriented, um, it seemed to me a, rather a, a lot of special pleading, actually, in the drawings. Look, look how much work I've done to, <laughs> to get where they are. They're not improvised kind of thing. But um, so still... Uh, this is going to be the evening where David Cohen asks Raphael Rubenstein questions, and the answer is always, I'm going to ask, say something else. So now tell me... Point taken, David. So no, 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 that's fine, but I do want to know. We're all on tenterhooks here. Which is the piece that uh, uh, compromises, or which is the piece that's the exception? So I, the, the, the piece with the actual toy trains going around uh, was the only freestanding piece, not, well, not the only freestanding piece, but most of them were, were wall-hung pieces. I thought that made too explicit the reference to trains, and um, I also, in contrast to Dennis, I didn't feel that I, he was kind of hitting me over the head with allusions to the Holocaust. I mean, I think that um, they maybe were there, but I, I don't feel that that was uh, heavy-handed. Um, but I think that what, why does, why does that piece not work for me? And I thought one of the reasons is that, is that, you know, you don't, you don't get the train uh, content or the train references through, directly through looking at the other pieces. They're sort of there, you know, um, well, they're all called tracks, I think. They're, they're all called named after railway but stations. They don't, you're right. They're named after railway stations, but they don't actually look like trains. It's more metaphorical. And, uh, and I think that was, for me, one of the problems. And then I think also it's just that uh, the structural complexity of the wall pieces seemed to be absent in, that, um, in the piece. Also, that there was a, you know, a radio playing and there was a... Uh, guard making sure you didn't try to what I don't know steal the trains or um, jump on them or play on them. Yeah, though yeah. I saw that the second time I saw that show it was just after the um, train derailment on the Metro North line, and uh, 
I actually, when it, that affected the way I was thinking about trains, it was the day after that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's certainly uh, uh, art imitating life rather than, or life imitating art. Yes, um, uh, but uh, actually the, the, the train piece, and I'm sorry, I'm just calling it that, I don't remember its title, but um, it, it, it had those strange um, ropes all around them, which at first one wondered if it was just the gallery trying to protect the trains, but then clearly were part of the work. And um, uh, But again, some of the details, I, I, I found that the, 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 the pipes there just very endearing. I mean, they were just um, uh, weird and funny. At the, the actual rusty pipes uh, through which formed the tunnels that the... But it became actually very literal. And whereas uh, I think, Raphael, I agree with you that um, in the other works, although there are train timetable, uh, case between type things and uh, the, the, the kind of um, details that you get in functional but public spaces um, in, in the vocabulary. Uh, it's more subtle and more uh, illusory and it, becomes, it does become very literal, doesn't it, with the, with the actual train? I think Raphael has a really great point and it made me think about how I had a certain expectation of movement in the other things. I kept thinking, well, does... Some, is something going to happen with these? And, of course, nothing does happen, but uh, it made me also think of the idea of waiting uh, at a train station or waiting for something to happen uh, and the whole idea of history and the role of, you know, waiting or expectation for something to happen. Um, that, I, I think, it, either that piece sets all that in motion or or um or ruins it <laughs> i don't you know i don't know which one great well let's let's see what our audience makes of these two shows then uh mukha and uh sorry mukha and and aldrich different ways to deal with ch's yes uh blake we, we, by the way uh, we, this is before uh, before our first questioner i'm just going to take note of the fact that on this miserable night where the art world is supposed to all be en masse in Miami. It's uh, rather cheering to see so many past and future review panel participants actually sitting in the audience rather than up here on the podium. So I take the opportunity to acknowledge Blake Gopnik, Blake Gopnik, Christina Key, Joan Waltermatt, and possibly someone else I'm not seeing. So, but yes, sir, your question. Um, about Comment. The, about the Muka show. I have to admit that when I walked in, I was sort of overwhelmed by the sense that it was Chelsea art. It had the kind of scale and lavishness of what I'm used to seeing in Chelsea. It felt sort of like SUV art. It felt overscaled and very expensive and over-engineered for what it needed to do. I just had this overwhelming sense of the Chelsea art market spending its money to produce incredibly lavish objects. Um, it reminded me more of uh, kind of Pompier history paintings of the 19th century than of anything else. And I'm wondering if anyone else had that feeling of a kind of ostentatious luxury pretending to be high art, in a sense. I thought of that when I saw it in, on the internet, but not when I saw it in person. I mean, I think it was, you know, there was a little bit of that, but it was so complex and so unexpected and such, a, you know, disjunctive things between the actual objects in the vitrines and even the way the, 
certain things were cut like cross sections that made you kind of explore it as an abstract sculpture. But um, just seeing, without seeing it in, in the gallery, I, I felt that. The scale is what sort of was a problem for me. The, and the, 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 what seemed to me clearly fabrication, just the amount of money spent on producing luxurious objects that will only fit in a 20,000 square foot apartment. But it wasn't, they weren't very luxurious. I'm surprised by your response, uh, Blake, because actually they're, they're quite arte povera. They're quite grubby. They're recycled new material. They're not new materials for the most part, although the hardware putting them together may be, but I almost felt somebody's sort of vandalized or ripped off a, a nice old railway station or something. But uh, as for the scale, I mean, I've, I'm familiar with his work from German museums. Uh, where they are the right scale for museum works. I mean, they're like, they're certainly, certainly smaller than the average uh, Anselm Kiefer that one would see in a museum, or even a Joseph Boyce. So, so it, it seemed, it also didn't seem like the kind of work you took home to your living room anyway. So, and what would be the right scale then? I mean, what would be the right size for that scale? I mean, it is supposed to be an environmental type experience. I, I mean, I, I, I don't agree with you. I think the, the scale is a bit, maybe like a Keenholz installation. I think that they are uh, to be experienced as potentially um, life-size um, things. So that they're not, they're not depictions. A depiction can be any size and have scale in it. But if it's, if it's not um, a representation of something but is a thing in itself, then it's, its size is axiomatic, right? Well, are, are you suggesting that maybe it's like there's no doubt that it's like capital A art. I mean, you're not mistaking it for a, a, a potted plant. Oh, that's art. But, you know, that this is like, it's meant to be experienced as art and it's very serious and a lot of money was spent. I do understand that, but I think that it rises to, you know, to that. that. It's interesting because um, I'm, they, in, in some sense, I think, to, to tie it back to the Aldrich a little bit, it seems like the exact opposite of Aldrich in so many ways because it's so produced and so much time and so much material. Um, but in fact, upon sort of reading more about it, I, it, it also has a kind of provisional quality that surprised me in terms of the fact that he actually switches elements of the works around a lot in these, um, these sort of freestanding pieces that were in front. He had never, they had been individual works and he sort of combined them for this show and he's, he's often taking parts of things and changing them and um, the, the woman I spoke to at the gallery said she's pretty sure that he'll reconstruct that train piece, you know, later. So that, that sort of put it into a, into a new light for me because it, 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 that was sort of my first impression, a little bit similar to yours, that it felt so um, kind of produced and... But then, in fact, it was it was more of a living process in a certain way. And then the whole back room sort of attests to that, where he's showing us all these kind of fragments of past works and past installations, um, similar to Aldrich in a certain sense. And also, I, I think just from what little I know about him, he hasn't shown here in 15 years. He's I think he's an artist who he's not someone who's kind of producing new uh, shows and trying to ease his work as, as smoothly as possible into, uh, into uh, marketplace. I, it, my impression is that it's just the opposite. He actually complicates things and makes things very difficult for, um, for uh, galleries uh, and for museums too. He has an almost um, antagonistic relationship uh, to these systems. 
Right, excellent. Okay, yeah. When I walked in, I felt like you could have this kind of Chelsea art experience just as on a very superficial level and when I first encountered it. But what kind of amazed me as I got in there is, is I started looking at the pieces a little more carefully. And I'm not that patient of a viewer, in fact. I like, my MO is like I go in and I want to trash it, right? And then I wait for the piece to resist me and give me a reason why I can't trash it. And I found there was a lot of resistance in that work for me, and I got really caught up in um, just looking at all of the decisions that were made in the making of the things and feeling like um, there was no easy way to account for what all of these decisions um, were. And so I kept looking at it and puzzling over it and thinking like, um, I had a similar experience when I first saw Matthew Barney. Like I felt like, oh, here's something like that. We just came over the crest, and there's something new that's that we're being confronted with, in terms of um, the way somebody's presenting an object to us and asking us to think about it. And that that was really compelling for me. And I I also got really involved in like, like after a while I looked around, it's like like what is he doing with all these stools? You know, there's like stools everywhere and all these pieces and. It seemed like, in a way, a very heartfelt attempt for um, a German artist to try to come to terms with the legacy of Germany. And I think only somebody that's German can really understand the weight and the burden of being born into that culture. So I appreciate that honesty. Okay, thank you. Yes. Any, uh, he said that um, the footstools are actually metaphors for artists, for the artist. He says the he says footstools and um, and uh, wedges to hold open front doors, and he kind of identifies himself as in this very sort of lowly uh, uh, kind of base function. Let's see if there's some comments on Richard Aldrich, the the, the show we opened with. Any, anybody want to share some comments um, on Aldrich? Yes. Yeah, I'll just say one thing. Uh, I saw the show for the first time last night and went right from there to uh, the painting show that was just opening at Ed Thorpe. And um, in both cases, pretty good paintings, I, I felt. And, and, and um, yet, being at the Thorpe show, I found myself really missing that larger problem so um, a more traditional gallery in some ways, or a gallery where collectors who take things home with them um, it doesn't have the, the same dynamic of the problematics and the, uh, the theory behind can one paint or not, whereas in a huge industrial, ex-industrial space like uh, Bartolami, um, not that Ed Thorpe's space isn't also ex-industrial, but you know, a, a bigger, more museum-y kind of space uh, that, that um, and with the ghosts of what's been there before, there's, there's more of that dynamic than of uh, conceptual questioning. Okay, rather than implicit in the work. Is that? You know, um, Aldrich's, I found Aldrich's painting surprisingly compelling. You know, as, as I looked, it, it gave back. And, um, and then, you know, I mean, it is that, that odd risk of that huge empty wall and the spacing between it. It's either incredibly precious or brave. 
And, and I, last night, for whatever reason, I felt it was brave. Excellent. Okay. I just respond. You know, I, I think that there, I think you're really on to something with that because um, a short time after I saw the third Aldrich show, uh, I saw the Patricia Tribe show. And I think that there's some real relationship going on in the paintings, uh, like how the paintings establish their pictoriality um, when, they're, when Aldrich is painting. Um, but there is something a little less complacent about um, Aldrich's work. And I do think that that, as irritating as that is, it's the kind of thing that makes you keep want, wanting to see, well, what's he going to do now, sort of. So I think that's a good, good comparison. Okay. I feel like the irritant is is intentional there and that uh, he's problematizing the situation. I don't think the question is, can one paint? I, uh, he paints so easily and he's such a big talent. But I think he does, um, to respond to what Becky Brown said, I think he edits a real lot because he could knock out easy paintings all day long. But, um, and I thought of that Joe Brainhard line that Art is walking down the street saying, hey, look at that. And that idea of including the world and including even what it is to present work in a gallery as part of the subject made it more interesting. Fantastic. Great. So uh, a couple of positive responses to Aldrich from the floor. Very welcome. So Richard Aldrich, it's good for artists to keep art critics on their toes, uh, metaphorically. Um, here is an artist who's done so this panel, quite literally, by <laughs> staging an exhibition uh, in, I don't know whether to say two parts and three segments, or three parts and two segments, but part one was repeated after part two, so um, a complete rehang um, in twice in the course of his exhibition, um, necessitating the return visit that his work on the basis of its own allure may or may not have precipitated anyway. So, did seem to me a little bit odd though, Dennis, that in fact, the contents of both parts of the show could have fitted quite neatly into the space I felt. Um, did we possibly suffer some sort of self-indulgence on the part of the artist in, in the installational organization of this show? Well, yeah, I think it was a bit hubristic to, you know, think that people are not only going to come and see your show, but <laughs> see it at least twice. Um, and the other thing about it was that I thought that I, I, I really enjoyed the way he engaged uh, me in this. But um, I think a lot of the work was about, you know, kind of upsetting the the way that you thought about his work rather than um, each painting being something to think about. I mean, I th think there were definitely paintings in there that uh, I could, you know, spend a lot of time evaluating on their own terms. Um, and it seemed kind of like underhanded to kind of, uh, you know, saying, well, but Really, I'm not that kind of painter. I'm really a conceptual painter. Yes, there was a very, uh, it felt to me like a very 
at moments heavy-handed determining of how one is supposed to look at these images, how one is not supposed to look at these images, even with a, a kind of directional statement framed as a work and sold as a work um, in part two, the middle part, um, as one came into the gallery. Uh, Becky, did you find that disconcerting or were you happy to be directed by the artist <laughs> in how to look at his work? Um, I, I think I was excited initially about this idea of um, paintings existing in a kind of community as, as objects and meaning depending not so much on the contents of, the, of an individual painting, but on the paintings as a group, the way they relate to one another. So I liked the premise and I, was, I didn't mind having it articulated at the beginning of the show, although it was, it was a little goofy, but... Um, then when it came down to it, I think I had trouble finding what those meanings exactly were. So I guess in, in this multiplicity of meanings that he was maybe trying to open the door for, I found the meanings themselves a little bit elusive. Yes. Um, Raphael, it seemed very much a show about painting rather than of painting. Is that a fair um, observation? And does that help or hinder one's uh, enjoyment or appreciation? or? Well, I, I want to agree with um, some of the things you've all said. I think he, uh, Aldrich is a very maddening artist, and, um, and I've been really interested and in, in responsive to his work, but at the same time, there, there are always a lot of things that really bother me about it. And you know, one of them is, as you said, this like unnecessarily uh, complex conceptual restaging and staging of the, of the show and have you know, lots of empty space. Uh, the cohabitation of sort of seemingly directly done, uh, touch-sensitive um, sort of paintings with, with sort of traditional qualities we look for in painting, along with completely banal uh, uh, sort of gestures of uh, a kind of defiance of that of those expectations, and and also that the, there are so many. Um, uh, hidden uh, illusions or information that's not available in the work of art, which in a kind of, in my old-fashioned uh, uh, retinal-based um, empirical bias, I sort of think I should be able to get everything I need from actually looking at the work. But, um, but on the other hand, I think that I, in some ways he reminds me sometimes of... Um, the uh, Herman Melville's character, Bartleby the Scrivener, who always says, I prefer not to. And, um, and I think that, you know, I'm curious, I'm, I'm, there's enough there that keeps me um, coming back to understand what is behind the motivations, what, why, what, what is it, what, what are these, what, what are the meanings, what, are, what is the, that community of, uh, circulating um, messages trying to say and sometimes it seems it seems to say nothing I mean one I wrote once about one of his paintings which I completely missed the fact that it was a portrait of the musician John Cale from the Velvet Underground and um, and I think there's a lot of things I missed and what does that you know there are different ways that artists communicate and fail to communicate and maybe he's telling us that Communication, uh, you know, there, there are these contradictions where he's explaining, over-interpreting the work uh, at the same time. 
the work seems to uh, elude interpretation. Yes, I mean, of course, the, uh, when, you, when you frame a statement about um, how you want works to be read and, and um, sell it as a work, then it destabilizes the, the relationship between a piece and a, um, a label. And so, therefore, that actually might be the conceptual uh, thrust of that work. It's, it's saying, this is how you should read the work, but don't trust me, because this is a thing. This is not an instruction. I mean, it, it, could, it could, therefore, be an added layer of conceptual conceit. And, in fact, he's giving us license to all be old-fashioned and retinal and empirical. Um, you know, I, I think that this, it's good to start with this show, but it could, we could have started with any show, because I think one of the things that is common to all of the shows that we're going to see is this concept of, you know, who is the audience for this work? I mean, I think that the audience that each one of these shows posits are vastly different in the way and expectations of how a person would approach this work. And, uh, you know, I think the thing that was always interesting for me about Richard Aldrich is when he, when he engaged me, uh, he does so in this like really unusual pictorial way where the paintings look abstract and then when you start to look at them, they you know, separate out. Suddenly there's a big bird in the, in the front of them and they're never sort of um, rendered. They're always, uh, you know, it, the image is always sort of found in the paint and that makes me look at them and engage in them in one way and then there's this you know, potted plant and Buddha, and it's like, um, it's almost like a negation to me, which, which kind of irritated me. It was like, you know. Um, there seems to be, in so many uh, painters today, um, the constant unfinished business of, is painting alive anymore? Can we still be painters? It's, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that uh, it just goes on decade after decade after decade of people making paintings and questioning whether one can make paintings. I mean, it, it, are we going to ever get to the point where they either don't make paintings or they just make paintings? Well, you know, it's interesting because in Roberta Smith's review of the Chris Wolf show, she referred to his paintings as endgame paintings, as if endgame paintings was a new genre of painting. Right. And I suddenly thought, like, how can that be that like, so there's still life painting and portraiture and endgame painting and they all kind of exist on the same yeah. you know, level. And of course, Pontormo was making endgame paintings as well. So, um, but Becky, uh, you're, you're, you're a painter and uh, you, you teach painting and, and you, 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 you come out of a, this uh, hotbeds where of, of places where they question painting. Um, do, do you feel that Aldrich is primarily a, a conceptual artist who sometimes uses paint to make conceptual points? Or do you feel there's a painterly sensibility regardless of what we're looking at, even the Buddhas and the flower pots? Um, I just wanted to respond quickly to something that you were saying bef before I get to that. There's a, there's a lot that's been said, I think, that is um, worth responding to. But yeah, I was just thinking it would be a funny um, assignment to give to students in a painting class. Okay, we're doing portraiture, we're doing still life, now end game painting. Now what would that look like to a group of students studying painting? Um, Beginners and painting. Oh. Yeah, in some way. But um, I, to, so is he more of a conceptual artist? I, I think I, I disagree with, with Dennis a little bit in terms of looking at some of these paintings and, and having them unfold visually. For me, I, 
I kept trying to look at them that way and hoping that there would be some kind of visual evolution or some kind of reward to looking closely. And time and again, they, they sort of rejected that, that way of looking at them for me um, because I, I just kept seeing a lot of blank canvas and a lot of um, empty space and something that I could kind of read, read visually very easily. I think that's, that's the way I look at a de Kooning, say, and it's you know, infinitely rewarding. I, his work just doesn't work for me that way at all, um, and it almost seems to make fun it make fun of someone for wanting painting to look that way, or to to offer those kinds of rewards. But I, for me, what it's more about is sort of something that Raphael was starting to talk about, which is these sort of layers of um, references that are embedded in the work. Many of which are, uh, some of which are interesting, some of which are not interesting, but. What I kept thinking from the moment I walked in um, to the show the first time was that I practically needed to have my smartphone in hand with Wikipedia open to start looking up these various things that were, um, that were referenced in the work because otherwise there seemed to be really no entry point. So I started to think that this was really a show about this sort of flow of information, um, which was a little bit disconcerting. But Raphael, you, you've, you've begun to describe positive aesthetic experiences, responses to Aldrich's work. And it, it seemed to me also that when one went to part two, um, the office door was open, and it's a, it's a huge gallery with beautiful offices and bookcases. And, and if you went into the back offices, most of part one was kind of in a much looser, more sort of uh, uh, freer, um, almost pretentiously unpretentious way one could see or mo most of part one in the office during part two. Well, they're still trying to sell it. How yes. did you guys, what was the order that you saw the work in? I meant to ask that. Mine was one and then two. Um, and Mine was the two and one, and it took me about 10 minutes of quizzing someone working at the gallery to, for me to understand that there were in fact three different installations, two of which resembled each other. And Did know, they resemble each other or were they exactly Oh, I saw one, two, and then one, yes. Uh, I was a bit of a glutton for punishment, but yes. Um, or, or a reward. Can I propose another way of thinking about this yeah. work is that um, he isn't, he's someone who does a lot, think about it as a studio, like all of these things that happen in his studio, and some of them are paintings, and some of them are poems, and text works, and... Uh, um, sculptural stacks and he is seeming it seems like he doesn't want to um, make choices or, or or leave out any of the uh, aspects of what happens in his studio so really what we're seeing is not it's not rather than thinking about it in terms of medium thinking about it in terms of uh, things produced within uh, a certain place by one artist at a certain time and he's going to in a kind of honest way wants to wants to show us everything you know, yeah i mean i'm an artist everything i do is art whether but some of it so is some of it shows some well well it may be but it may be a, it may be rather than being uh, a, despite the the framed statement it might be the opposite of a framed statement it might be that he's it's a stream of consciousness of possibilities it's not i mean the cynic would say he's hedging his bets but the optimistic way of looking at it would be to say um, that he, he is 
exploring and celebrating the, the multiplicity of possibilities. That's the Buddha and the flower pot, perhaps. <laughs> you yeah. know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, please. <laughs> I mean, I, I would agree, and that's, and I'm, I really love that idea of, of celebrating the, the kind of banal things and the everyday things and the things that are worked a lot versus the things that are worked a little. But I also believe in editing as an artist, and I think that you need to hone in what you're trying to say a little bit. I think that's, that's your responsibility. Otherwise, um, you know, we could all just walk down the street and experience the world. Um, I don't know. Yeah, well, you could all paint cornfields. I mean, I mean uh, but it, it's, it's, we do want some people to do it for us. I mean, some of us want an artist to do it for us, or we want to see what an artist comes up with when he I does mean, it. I mean, as an artist, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that who you are does not have to be evinced by, you know, I only paint, uh, you know, paintings with grids and flowers and, you know, or whatever, you know, a, a certain thing is, and I do it with like minor variations over and over again. I mean, the idea of a self can be much more expansive than that. Um, the problem that I have is that, you know, it's all very nice to have a show and talk about it on a review panel and stuff like that, but in the end, what, you know, what is the bigger picture for an artist's career? I mean, what do you want to be left with? Uh, your, the work has to get fragmented and it doesn't, I think if, if it just exists in the memories or on the internet as like a group of, of things, um, I, I, that's not what I grew up thinking about. I, I sort of thought that, you know, everybody would have a partial story by seeing, uh, one piece and that they might not get the relationship, but any one piece could give you a whole universe. Yeah. And I think with some of his paintings, you have that. And with other things, they're just <clears throat> opaque and like you don't have a connection with them. And if I didn't see it again, I wouldn't, the second time I saw it, I wouldn't get like a whole new idea about what it was. That's true, but you could say that almost of, of, of very many artists who present their work today. I mean, even think of somebody like uh, Wangechi Mutu, who we started the uh, season with. Um, there are her collages and paintings, and then there's, say, a sculptural piece that she's made, obviously, just for that exhibition as a way to present that exhibition. I, I think of it as being, I know what you're saying, that you want, you, it is, I think, though, an old-fashioned notion that every piece that comes from the artist's studio or it belongs to the artist's oeuvre has the DNA of the whole body. Um, but maybe those things that, as it were, don't have the DNA are, are more like clothes and less like um, body parts. Well, not just, I don't mean like the DNA, I just mean that there is, there is in it, like when you, there's a reason for seeing it again and that that reason is that when you see it again, you notice things that you didn't notice and that, that the layering of the way an artist attracts uh, and holds a viewer's attention is kind of complex and multi, multifaceted and things that are just like, they look the same, that you get everything that you can get out of them from seeing them the first time. I mean, that's what kind of feels impoverished to me. Right, yes. I had, the, I, I had a sensation of seeing um, Aldrich at the same time as, actually on one occasion I saw it the same day as I went and saw Martin Creed at Gavin Brown's Enterprise. And I thought, ah, there's something happening here. Martin Creed 
comes to attention, international fame, with a piece that involves turning the light on and off, about as minimal and conceptual as you can get. And then you go to see his show at uh, Gavin Brown Enterprise, and there are these nice, pretty paintings around. I'm always thinking, is it now that the way to get away with painting, but to be in the A-list, is to first establish your chops as an anti-painter, and then say, but by the way, I also paint. Um, and sell them for a lot of money. Yeah, they sell them for a lot of money, that's one thing, but obviously have fun. And the funny thing about both Creed and Aldrich is when you just have paint expressively organized on the canvas, yeah, there's, it's underwritten a bit or a lot, perhaps, by the kind of conceptualism of the not painting work that the same artist does. But if you try, as one must, if one is, uh, as Raphael claims, to, uh, he says, you know, an empiricist and a, uh, a retinal person, if we, if we really focus on the piece itself rather than the whole career behind it, they seem to be pretty nice paintings sometimes, right? Is that, what, how do we sort this out? Well, I think Dennis raises a, a, an important point. Is also what happens to the work when it's no longer under the control of the artist. And, you know, who knows where... You know, a work of art needs to be able to, if it's going to survive through history, it's got to be able to find a new context for itself and, and have the same, or not the same kind of, of, of impact or, or meaning, but some kind of meaning that will be able to transcend its initial frame. And, uh, and I think that one of the things that, uh, that Aldrich is uh, doing is maybe... Um, betraying some kind of anxiety uh, that artists have about how their work is going to be interpreted in the future. And there, um, Martin Kippenberger had this concept of the uh, full-service artist, that the artist should, um, should produce everything in relationship to their show, write the press release, design a poster, design a catalog, make a speech at the opening, and, um, and that that, you know, to be an artist is not simply making the work that's hanging on the wall or, or, or displayed in the space, but it's that, you know, following, framing the product and, and, and standing behind it in, in, uh, in a way that acknowledges its place in a, in, within the market. And what, would, would the artist also get to choose the next show then? I mean, if he's taking that many responsibilities from the gallerist or the curator. The artist doesn't have to buy the paintings too. Oh, that, that would be... <laughs> but, but in fact, that's, you know, there are limits to that. And, and it, you know, I guess that's something why time is important and how we see that what will, what will it look like to find one of these paintings uh, in uh, a completely different context in five or ten years. And but then it might partly, Becky, be that, one, um, that time will tell. I, I always think of that um, print by British conceptual artist Tom Phillips, uh, about Van Gogh, is a time is a great dealer, um, that actually time will actually have to decide uh, what was an Aldrich work and what was an Aldrich kind of non-work. Um, if, if in the future they are still dealing with works, with uh, pieces, <laughs> or whether the, the, the whole audience taste goes beyond the retinal and the empirical and, and does embrace the career and the, the notional. I mean, we don't know. So not to second guess it, just to think how we cope with it now. Um, Becky, do you, do you have a sort of distinction in your mind between the paintings and the non-paintings uh, with Aldrich? And, and if so, um, how do you get on with the paintings, just the paintings? 
Well, I think I, I talked about that a little bit already when I, I was saying that they don't, they don't really do much for me visually. Um, but I, I'm still trying to understand. I think, I think you have to under, look at his work as a whole. I, I don't think you can separate um, parts. And I think he's, he's very clear about that in his writing <laughs> on the work um, in terms of viewing it as a sort of whole alphabet of symbols in a way. Um, but I'm just still trying to, to, to put it together. I'm, I'm trying to understand if we should look at this paper bag as a sort of Duchampian gesture. Um, is this hearkening back to a sort of 60s conceptualism? Or it seems to be a new, a new kind of brand for me. And I'm, I'm still sorting out, I guess, in the multiplicity of meanings, wh where to exactly, what, what exactly is it about? Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the final show, and I've asked uh, panelists to kick off on each one so far, and there's, there's four shows and four of us. I'm going to uh, go out on a limb and say um, I was riveted by this show. I've uh, known uh, Morris's work for years, never taken it terribly seriously, and I think that the, um, what I have not known before or taken proper note of is her work as a filmmaker, uh, which is really almost... a an almost equal collaboration, I felt, with um, uh, her now ex-husband, uh, Liam Gillick, uh, providing the, the soundtrack for uh, Rio. Um, the, uh, I think I've got the emphasis wrong that I've always seen. Uh, there are, you know, one could say there are painters who make films and there are uh, filmmakers who, who make artworks. And um, so if, say, Vim Vendors is an example of the latter, and so when you go to James Cohan Gallery, you're almost sort of buying souvenirs of a great film director, uh, then maybe, um, say, well, Julian Schnabel is obviously a pretty serious filmmaker, but um, those who have the, the sort of one shot at, at Hollywood, whether it's uh, uh, Laurie Simmons or David Sally, you could say, well, no, they're still, they're painters who've made a film. Um, I hitherto, I think, wrongly thought of uh, Morris as a, as a painter who, who's made, who sometimes makes a film. And I just came out of the show, uh, went to, uh, twice, really sensing that the paintings look a little better now than they did before, and the film was a revelation, not, not a, quite the Christian Markley kind of level of revelation, but it was a very positive experience. Uh, we'll go on to perhaps describe the film in some uh, more analysis, with some more analysis, but um, anybody want to shoot me down or uh, anybody, um, anybody less than exhilarated with the film? Did you stay for the whole hour and a half? <laughs> I did, and it, it went quickly. I mean, you warned me about the fact that it was going to be an hour and a half, and I was thinking... I've never looked at a Sarah Morris painting for, for a minute and a half. Am I going to look at a Sarah Morris painting uh, film for an hour and a half? And um, not only did I find myself staying for the whole hour but, and a half, but um, then went out and the paintings began to look very different. I thought I was going to just have go in and out with the paintings in the film. But uh, no, no, I thought it was, it was really... Um, it, it really had... It had narrative, it had lack of narrative, it, was, it had an abstraction, it was um, a very uh, sumptuous film. How did it change your um, idea of the paintings? That's what I would like to know. Well, 
Ah, we got a new moderator and a new, and a new guest. No, that's, no, that's, 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 that's fair enough. When the moderator suddenly becomes a guest, uh, somebody has to uh, take over. Yeah. Um, but my conscience as an ex-moderator tells me that I'm talking quite a lot. And Becky, I will come back to Dennis's question. But uh, um, Raphael, where did you, where did, what did you make of uh, Sarah Morris? I made of Sarah Morris' show exactly what I've made of her previous shows, which is that I've always, I found the films so much more powerful than the paintings, which I find almost without interest as paintings, very unconvincing. To me, the paintings seem like sort of uh, really great, brilliant graphic art, but as objects, I, don't, I, I can't engage with them. And it's not just because they're you know, smooth, slickly painted, uh, hard-edged, uh, Paintings. It's just I feel. Uh, someone said earlier that um, uh, they were very curious about uh, uh, the decisions, um, wanting to know about the decisions that Reinhard Mucha makes in uh, in making his sculptures. And I always feel like when I am in front of a work of art, and I want, I feel like I want to know why the artist has made every choice, every decision, and that for me is a sign that I'm becoming involved. That something is going on for me with that work. With Sarah Morris's paintings, I really have um, no curiosity whatsoever about why certain forms are um, deploy deployed in a certain way or, or the palette. And I think a lot of her paintings, I think, are sort of um, uh, appropriated, found uh, designs from uh, uh, sources that are relevant to whatever her, her larger subject matter is. But, if I, I, at the same time, I, th I thought the film was really um, riveting, and I too, it was, it went very quickly, and the sense of movement is one of the things that really uh, hits you in the film, and also, you know, her her work. I think she's trying to say something about uh, uh, architecture and um, modernity and the relationships of people to their surroundings and to the cultural and social structures. All of that really comes through very strongly in the films and, and yet for me doesn't uh, in the paintings. They, um, so I've had in some ways an opposite. I, I didn't change my feeling about not being interested in the paintings, but it, it, it reinforced my, uh, my actually uh, enjoyment in, in being impressed with the films. Yes, Becky. We actually found ourselves in the film together at one point. Lots of motifs there, aren't there? It's, it, it's, um, it, the, the, there's this um, very rich um, soundtrack. I, I don't know that Liam Gillick is classed as a composer. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's on the computer, but well, composers use computers, of course. But it's a, a, a rather compelling soundtrack that really abstracts um, it sometimes complements, but usually um, abstracts what one's looking at. In, in the carnival scene, that, that, that the, the, the parades, that uh, uh, culmin uh, the culmination of the film, uh, clearly those parades have a tremendous amount of music um, and noise that go with them. We lose those and get instead the kind of frenzied sort of disco um, trance type um, music of uh, sound effects of uh, uh, Liam Gillick. But the, the, 
just however short or long a time you would spend there, you'd see you'd see cats, for instance, uh, pussy cats, uh, very well groomed ones in the uh, home of a retired supermodel, and very grungy looking ones in a in a, a sort of public place. Um, and there are sometimes you know there are things about class, there are things about Rio, uh, but it's uh, the erotics of the city. But um, yeah, this is some question. <laughs> what did you make of it? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I was also riveted by the film, but also by the paintings. Um, I, I think they're, they work together really beautifully for me. And she's an artist who I feel like can use two completely different mediums with completely different conventions to actually communicate an experience that's very cohesive in, in a certain way, um, which is an experience of kind of at once being really seduced by color and surface and abstract worlds and intersections, but also having a kind of fear at the same time of what might happen if you fully succumb to this world. And I, I think that was that really was my experience in both um, in both the in front of the paintings and um, while watching the film. I think that the I agree with the the film really with the soundtrack abstracts the the entire content of the film. Not only do we not hear the sounds of the carnival, but we can't hear anyone speaking, and there's often a lot of people speaking. We don't hear the sound of the street, so we have this sort of bombardment of of images, basically the same kinds of ingredients that go into the paintings: color, surface, um, shininess versus not shininess. Um, and we have to kind of make sense of, of that experience. Would you pay to go see this film in a movie theater? That's a good question. Um, I mean, it's, it's not a narrative film, so, so probably not. I mean, I, when I go to the movies, I'm usually looking for something more akin to narrative, but I, I agree that it, the time really went by. I was so captivated by by just the flow of images, and I found that I was thinking about so many things while while watching the film. Thinking about just organization in general, how things are organized, how cities are organized, how people are organized, how factories are organized, um, and I I really appreciated having that kind of flood of of thoughts that accompanied a flood of images. I, I would have paid having seen it. I wouldn't pay in advance to go and see it. But having seen it, and you then said, oh, by the way, you have to pay. Well, <laughs> I, I would say that that question is a cruel one because it works. It could work the other way around. You could say, would you contribute to the making of a film of your favorite director that you'd really like to see? Say your favorite director is Vim Vendors. And they say, well, if you, Dennis Carden, could give the price of a Dennis Carden painting to Vim Vendors, he will make his next film for you. No, that's because that, that is that's in fact reversing your question. Uh, it, this is art, and we're used to not paying for art. No, or at least my, I am. My question really goes to the experience of going to art galleries and looking at art. I, I, I will say that I was quite captivated with the 25 minutes or so that I spent looking at the film, and uh, and I would have liked to have seen the whole thing. But uh, I think that there's a certain expectation when you go around to look at art galleries that um, you can have the whole experience and think about it and spend 
you know, as much time as you want. You can control the amount of time that you spend with the experience, but uh, which you still can do in this in this case too. But <clears throat> I was irritated that this, you know, after 20 minutes, and I didn't even come in at the beginning, and I thought like I would, you know, come in from where I saw it and, you know, go till it, it started again and stuff like that. Uh, I just ducked out and said, well, how, how long is this? And it was like, you know, 180 minutes or something like, or, you know, it was, it was or, uh, two hours, 90 minutes. 90, 90 minutes, right, I'm sorry. Um, but I just thought like, you know, we're talking about an artist having a show in three parts, um, having an artist having your show that you have to, you know, look at for, uh, you know, 90 uh, minutes, 90 plus, minutes. Plus it, three minutes for the paintings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for three minutes for the paintings, yeah. Right. Unlike Becky, I did not really. Uh, um, but, uh, and I thought that, well, either you want us to, to not look at the whole thing, you don't have any expectation yeah. that you're gonna look at the whole thing, so why make it, you know, yeah. that long? Or that you do have an expectation to look, that you want people to look at the whole thing, in which case I'd say, like her parents were way too praiseworthy of you know everything that she did yeah. because uh, it's fair enough. But uh, I have a question then for for Raphael, who's who's seen more of the films than I think uh, the rest of us on the panel maybe. Um, I I did a little you know you can't see a Sarah Morris film on YouTube, but uh, there are segments you can. I mean you can, but you can't experience it properly. But I did my best on my iMac with her films of Chicago and Beijing, and it seems to me that in I, I want to know from Raphael if you agree that in Rio, she's really found her city. It just seemed to be, from what I, the little I could see, maybe this, it, it seemed to make such good sense of her paintings for her to be in Rio. It, I, I agree with you. I think this film does seem uh, stronger, more successful. It might just be that she's becoming better at making films. She's had more experience doing them and they're getting better and better. And, but, or maybe there is something about the balance of the, um, the, the visual rhythms of Rio and, um, and, but, you know, I think one of the things that I think is true of her films is that they're, I mean, you think, looking at this, I thought a lot about access. Like, how did she get access to, to this, you know, the culmination of the Carnival Parade or the various sites? And, um, and I also was thinking about uh, trying to reflect on what would what are the differences? I've never been to Rio, but like what are the differences between Rio and New York? And how would an audience in Rio look at a film that she made in New York? And you know, would they find some things exotic and or comic in in our daily behavior? And uh, and that so I I thought that I had this kind of interesting reversal going on, but. Um, I feel sometimes she's, I wonder why she's in, attracted to the more cliched uh, sites and uh, uh, subject matter in, in, and she does this I think in a lot of the films that she, in different places around the world, and very different like Chris Marker's Saint Soleil, which I was thinking of, which is a film, uh, mostly a lot of it is shot in Japan and, and Marker tries as hard as he can to get out of the kind of away from the conventional tourist traps and, and kind of get into the, the unseen life. And she uh, seems 
not to want to do that. She was really looking she at... She had like, you know, the daily life of factory workers. And I mean, oh. I was really well, struck by oh, that. Maybe uh, I left before that. Uh, yes, uh, she has a, a rather compelling scene in a brewery. It's a, it's a brewery and it's... Uh, um, I, I, yeah, I, 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 well, we, Becky and I saw it all, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, uh, sorry, are you wanted to finish up something? Oh, just, or are we going to come back to the paintings again? Uh, yes, we can do, um, because I'll, I'll answer Dennis's question about the paintings, um, and, and I feel that, um, I, I've always thought of her as being like a sort of, um, Peter Halley light, in that they are sort of, Decor, but with some some kind of conceptual underpinning that you could find out about if you wanted to. Um, but actually, seeing the films, you know, it's it's like for me when you look at photographs, it's the opposite of with an, say Ellsworth Kelly or Sean Scully uh, or Joe Fife. When you look at their photographs, they're finding in the world um, things that rhyme with what they've already found in their studio in their paintings. And it seems to me that with uh, Sarah Morris, it's the other way around that. Um, or, or, or maybe actually, no, this is a more interesting prospect, that it's not the other way around, that she goes out into the social and political sphere but finds um, formal things uh, that perhaps are what she's playing with in her graphic decorations. Um, and then it also seems uh, telling and interesting to me that she, has, she imposes her kind of grids and lines and shapes on actual movie posters, uh, for instance, uh, Kill Bill, with then uh, is the backdrop, the support for uh, a Sarah Morris painting, and then that seems to me um, that seems to me right that uh, that there is this there is this chemistry between the paintings and the the films. The films have an abstraction to them. The paintings then have a kind of social hierarchy and possibilities of. Uh, um, uh, you know, troubles, more troublesome politics about them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, calling them decorations, it, it just, that's really what they were to me. And it found, they were more than that, that in that they found, it seemed like they were financing for her filmmaking, that, you know, I can make these high-priced objects, but I'll do what I really want to do which is make these films because it seemed like in you know even 20 minutes of the film that I saw was so much more thinking and involvement with the world and stuff like that that I just thought like you know except for trying to raise money to do this why waste your time you know like designing these things Becky you're the defender of the paintings so we're all whether we love her or hate her here we're sort of saying the paintings are ancillary to the to the to the film um, and or uh, yeah, what what can you say? What can you tell us about the paintings? Do they do they really work the way uh, an Albers or an Ellsworth Kelly or a, uh, would would work, or a, even a Stephen Westfall? Or uh, what what are they actually doing with form and decisions? Or 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 are they? It, does it operate on a different conceptual level? Um, I, I I would say that they do operate similarly to the way that something like Albers would operate. Um, I wouldn't say really um, Kelly so much, but for me, they, they're really about the potential of abstraction as a language to communicate and as a language that in fact mirrors the world in many ways. And I think she, 
she makes that very clear with the with the movie posters with the with the images on top of them because we can actually see where design and abstraction seem to operate this sort of unlikely space together where they both seem to take up some of the same ingredients circles grids color repetition these are the same you know ingredients we've seen in the entire history of abstract painting and yet there's they're these same ingredients that we're seeing in um, these various design uh, motifs, in cityscapes, in architecture, in clothing, in human bodies, in, in everything that we can see around us. Um, and the paintings helped me to kind of register this abstract thinking that, that was happening also in the film. Um, because I was sort of having these different kinds of reactions to them at once. I think the color is really powerful and compelling. Um, I also think that the, the kinds of abstract shapes that are interacting are very provocative because they, they look completely abstract, but they also look like details of machines, maps, any, any number of other kinds of things. Um, they also, they're all fragments, and I think fragmentation is something that's really interesting in her work. She's always showing this some sort of degree of fragmentation, whether it's a really close up zoom in or it's a kind of farther away level of fragmentation. And the paintings as well always seem to suggest that they could extend beyond the borders of the frame. Why paintings? I mean, why not just design them on a computer and print them out like as a movie poster? But like, you know, I mean, why? To me, the paint's very, very present and, really? and luscious in a way. I mean, there's mattes and there's glossy paints and there's these black lines that kind of weave around everything outlining. I mean, I guess in a way, yes. abstraction can be subjective. <laughs> I don't know. One of my problems with the paintings is they don't seem to propose any new way of thinking about painting or about form. Because like, I feel like they're so based in or, or dependent on mid-century, mid-20th century uh, graphic design and, and very elegantly done. But I think that, that idea of, um, of appropriating uh, modernist uh, motifs is all, you know, that's, that was done so much from, you know, going back to Peter Halley. And, and I think that- well, Aren't they contemporaries, sort of? No, she's, no, she's much, I think, quite a bit younger. And, and, and I think this is, a, maybe this is a generation problem. I mean, when we came to the city, this is what painting kind of looked like or, ha or had looked like and was still, you know, Frank Stella's, uh, uh, protractor series was not that you know far in the distance and he hadn't really gone into the bigger aluminum things yet so uh, this is what serious painting looked like to me and so seeing it rear its ugly head again um, is just kind of uh, yeah but I think that, uh, that that Halley was a conceptual painter and that Sarah Morris is a neo-conceptual painter, so that we are, um, you know, I'm sorry to sound, it may, these categories may seem glib and arbitrary, but I'm not sure they actually are. And so I, I would defend the paintings by saying, don't take them so seriously, and so what are their paintings? Because they are, um, they're artifacts uh, that happen to use the same materials that sublime abstract painting could use, and some of the same motifs, but they're not trying to be sublime paintings. They are, I think, uh, extensions of, sort of souvenirs of, some of the um, 
ideas that are in, uh, in, in the film. I mean, think about Niemeyer in the film. These are, uh, these are um, sort of deconstructive in a way of the optimism of abstract painting. And um, they, are, um, they are basically, I think, you know, it's, it's okay that they're um, rather thin and, and um, it's, not, it's not merely okay that they're sort of thin decorations. It's part of their meaning and it is part of their value. And their meaning, their value is not the meaning and value that we would go to great abstract painting for or even interesting conceptual painting for. It's, it's neo-conceptual. They are, uh, there's the paintings, there's the posters, the film, and the hierarchy is inverted. The paintings are at the bottom, the film is at the top, and the posters are somewhere in the middle. Well, that's a brilliant defense of it. I don't know if I, you've convinced me, but I think that that was a really well thought out. Uh, that's good. I mean, I, w I think that the project, it, her project to me is fairly similar to Peter Halley's. I guess I'm, I'm not scholars on, on either of, I'm not a scholar on either of them, but to me, they both seem to deal with um, geometry and power and where those things sort of intersect and how, um, color and design and geometry can both be very seductive, but can cause a sort of hypnosis and a kind of um, threat um, that could occur through by submitting to them. Right. Uh, to me. Um, Excellent. I think we, um, and I know who's to blame, we have gone over a little, uh, I, but I would like to uh, give the, uh, I'd like to hear from our audience. So there's uh, Mallory Marder and there's, um, um, uh, Sarah Morris, uh, we'll take we'll take comments as they come. Doesn't matter which or both. Um, anybody has something to share us? Yes, Sarah, with us. Thank you. Uh, back to the earlier uh, part of this, uh, where we were looking at the prostitutes, sex workers, and what's clearly and obviously left out are the people that manage them, uh, the pimps, uh, the sex uh, uh, millionaires, whatever they are. Uh, that put all that together and then put them out. And the only time that the sex worker really responds to anything is when they're having sex. And then the only reason they do that is because the money comes in, they're paid off in a whole variety of ways uh, by, their, uh, by their managers. And I think that's such an important piece of this to take into consideration. Um, without it, uh, the rest of it's very shallow for me. Right, okay, thank you. Yes. Yes, uh, lady at the back. Um, I just wanted to say as a Brazilian artist, as living here a long time, I was very impressed with Sarah Morris's film because um, she conveys like the contradictions of uh, society as well as she does a beautiful job in the images, but the content itself was very striking to me. I wish I had found a way to say that, you know, it's always been um, mind-boggling how so many things exist at the same time. So I think maybe she found her subject matter because it is so ripe, it is so full of contradictions, and I think she does that really beautifully. Thank you, yeah. Yes, uh, the other side of the hall, Kathy. Please wait for the mic, yeah. Um, I just can't resist saying it's, it's probably not a, a very good idea to say it, but <laughs> got the mic. Um, 
to me, it's so clear that uh, Sarah Morris's work is very feminine and that she's working in circles and that the artists you compared her work to, like Peter Halley, they're, like Alberts, that they're, they're so right-angled. They're so defined by that. And her work has this kind of, I don't know, it's sort of very fluid, deft geometry. And it just seems, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of traditionally feminine. And there, I said it. Okay. Thank you. Yes, some, some more. Yes, fantastic. Um, I just wanted to say that in the, the photographs of the women, I haven't seen the show, so I don't know if they look what it's like to experience in person, but to me it seemed like those women feel really comfortable in their bodies. You know, that they just had this, they were working. It was a job and they were working and I didn't expect any sort of um, emotional interaction, and, but I just really appreciated the fact that regardless of their size or shape, that they seemed really at home with what they were doing. That's an interesting reading. Thank you. Yeah. I saw another hand go up towards the back. Yes. I was just going to answer that. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was a question, but the. Um, I thought Sarah Morris's paintings have to do with the Brazilian neo-concretist movement, which now has been resurfacing. There yes, was the, the neo-concretism of, uh, of yeah. Brazilian mid-century modernism is referenced yeah. in. Yeah. Also, a lot of this, the titles had to do with things that were in the film. And I also wanted to say, I do, I'm not quite, she must be very much into like, power and connections because the people she did interview and the things they were like I, I made me wonder how did she get access to all this it was mind-boggling yes that she uh, yes there's a there's a, there are scenes with oscar niemeyer which i think um i don't know if she shot them or if they are footage but there's a there's a section with oscar niemeyer and then there's a visit to the home of the uh woman who had been a i don't know her name but she was a a famous model in the 1960s. Do you know her name? Right. Thank you. Yeah. The highest paid actress in Brazil is Camila Pitanga. And she, she has shots of them shooting the, the novellas, which are the 8 p.m. like powerhouses of yes. how social things happen. Right. She's, wow. She's well, a, now we know that there's a yeah. very famous and very well-paid Brazilian actress and that the film is free. We'll all have to go and see it <laughs> a, a third time. Uh, audience, panel, thank you, and, and, and valiant workers here at the National Academy, thank you very much. And uh, see you around. See you on January the 24th. Have a great holiday.